On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Michael Haken about Baptists and the sacraments. So we cover topics like what is a sacrament and why do many contemporary Baptists want to avoid that terminology? Why was that terminology changed to ordinance in Baptist history and as well in the confessions? What does it mean for baptism to be a sacrament and the means of grace? What is the sacramental participation in baptism for the baptized and the observers? How does the Lord's Supper function as a sacrament and much, much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church, but we don't want to just think seriously. We want to also cultivate certain virtues. We want to cultivate all the Christian virtues, but a couple of them that we've singled out, charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. We think that we can uh, hold to robust Baptistic Reformed confessional doctrine and do it with a glad heart and do it in a way that it has the extends the right hand of fellowship to to other Christians, especially those who we want to circle around things like the Nicene Creed, the ecumenical creeds that we find that really bonds us all together. But beyond that, we also have a more robust confession that we think is true and a right accurate summary of uh, of Scripture. But we don't want to be jerks about it. We want to be kind and uh, friendly. So. We're trying to do that. We're not always perfect at it, but hopefully we encourage you to do that and to at least think in that those sort of ways. As far as today, our interview, it's with Dr. Michael Haken. Now, I imagine most of you know who Dr. Haken is because he's awesome, and we've had him on the show several times. He is professor of church history and biblical spirituality at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, director of the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies, and much more. He uh, He's written all sorts of books that have really edified uh, me and I know the church at large. The one we're talking about today is this new one from Lexham. And I'll just read you two of the, two of the blurbs on the back. One is from Matt Emerson. He says, this is a must read for anyone attempting to understand the Baptist position on the sacraments, credo Baptist or not. And then you have Crawford Gribben, who says, drawing on some of the most popular hymns and formative theological writing in particular Baptist history, Michael Haken's outstanding new book offers a much needed recovery of this doctrinal and devotional tradition. So if those don't get you excited about the book, I don't know what will. I'm going to link to it so you can go find it and go get a copy of it. I think Lexham's awesome. They're really putting out some really cool stuff. So I'm, I'm pumped to talk about the sacraments. But before we do that, Dr. Haken, give us, I mean, is it, what is it that drew you to thinking about this topic and writing this particular book? I mean, you've written a lot in your career and life, but what about this one? Yeah, uh, it's great to be with you both and uh, to be uh, on the London Lyceum again. Um, I suspect that uh, what drew me to this was the, I guess, the paucity that I've experienced in Baptist celebration of the Lord's Table. Um, as a historian, I obviously knew uh, from reading 17th and 18th century documentation, um, uh, formal treatises, uh, as well as letters, diaries, uh, confessional documents, hymnody. The Baptists in the past have had a very, very rich view of the table, which does not usually correspond to where we're at today. And um, one of the big things that has kind of 
shaped my thinking about Baptist uh, history and theology over the years is the is summed up with the the French word uh, resourcement or retrieval is probably the closest English equivalent of that word and uh, which is basically going back to the past and uh, finding riches and resources that can help us uh, be more faithful, uh, be more true to scripture in our present day. So that was certainly uh, probably the, the main interest that kind of guided this, this study. Um, the various constituent chapters um, kind of pulled together uh, two years ago when I was asked by uh, Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary to do a series of lectures that had been planned probably uh, back around uh, 2018 for the spring of 2020. Well, of course, as you know, the pandemic hit and we did them by Zoom. But um, it struck me after I'd done them because they, they contained some of the material was brand new. Uh, some of it dated back, you know, maybe 10, 15 years, but it struck me that I had here um, really kind of a, a small volume uh, um, that was really an appeal for Baptists to rethink the way that we have done um, the Lord's table. And so I contacted Lexham Press. I have a pretty strong relationship with a number of the editors there. And uh, you're right, they're doing some I'm really thrilled with the sort of work they're doing, not only uh, obviously content wise, but in, in terms of the way that they take take care vis-a-vis -vis the, the actual physical product, uh, the fonts used. Um, I mean, you can see that there is not only a concern for uh, excellence in terms of content, but excellence in terms of presentation. So I contacted uh, Lexham Press and uh, during the conversation, and the ongoing work on the book, um, they suggested a chapter on baptism, which constitutes the second chapter. And I think that's right. Um, and then uh, the commissioning editor there, Todd Haynes, who's just absolutely brilliant in many ways. Uh, Todd uh, said, why, why don't you finish the book with some theses and maybe even some prayers? And so the final two sections are six theses on uh, the subject of the book, which I flesh out. And then uh, prayers, I thought, where, where am I ever going to get any of these? And providentially, there came across my path two books um, uh, by Baptists in the 19th century that had prayers. Uh, James Hinton um, drew up a whole prayer book for the entirety of the year. Um, and uh, James Harrington Evans, um, who is a fascinating figure, um, was an Anglican. And along with probably half a dozen other Anglican ministers, they just left the Anglican church in the 18 teens, 1820s and became Baptists. Um, and he was based in the capital. He would have known, I think he knew Spurgeon as a very young man. I, I could be wrong on that. But anyway, uh, he drew up um, a uh, prayer book. Now, given his Anglican background, you can understand why there would be a predilection that way. And so I used... Uh, some of those prayers, uh, about four or five of those prayers, uh, as a vehicle for, you know, prayer for reflection before you receive the Lord's table, after you receive the Lord's table, and so on. So uh, the final product was a lot more than those <clears throat> the four lectures I had given for the Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, but I'm really very, very happy with it. 
So the subtitle of the book is is Recovering Sacrament in the Baptist Tradition, which in and of itself is kind of pr- provocative for some Baptists, seeing as that's not a word that we use uh, too much, at least today. So maybe we can start by defining that word for listeners who, um, you know, it's not used in their church. They don't know what's meant by sacrament. They may hear it and think Roman Catholic or something like that. And then um, as a part two of that question, why have Baptists uh, most often opted for using the word ordinance when it comes to baptism and the Lord's Supper? Yeah, very good. Um, the word sacrament really goes back to the Latin sacramentum, uh, which was uh, an oath of allegiance. Uh, it was the oath of, of allegiance of the Roman legionnaire took upon entry into uh, into a Roman legion in the second and third centuries. Uh, Tertullian uses it. Um, from there, it kind of entered into the mainstream of Christian life that the Lord's table and baptism, and you can see it very clearly in baptism. Baptism is is a vow of commitment. It's a prayer to God. First uh, Peter, First uh, Peter uh, three. Um, and so it enters into uh, uh, early Christian uh, terminology. Uh, by the time you move into the Middle Ages, though, it becomes to be almost um, magical. It's something that works despite the, <clears throat> the intention and belief of the, the participant or the receiver. And uh, not surprisingly, uh, during the Reformation, among the things that had to be addressed was this wrong understanding uh, regarding the, the sacraments as we call them. Um, in the 17th century, as Baptists emerged, the word sacrament was regularly used by Baptists, but it would appear never in their the confessional documents. The, the two confessional documents that uh, both of you and myself look back to in the 17th century, the first London Confession, 1644, second edition, 1646, and then the second London Confession, which uh, came out in 1677, 1688, and then is uh, def- um, ratified in 1689, sometimes known as the 1689 Confession. Um, in both of those confessions, uh, they, well, especially the second confession, which draws upon the Presbyterian uh, Westminster Confession and the uh, uh, Congregationalist Savoy Declaration, uh, where those two documents use the word sacrament, the Baptists changed them to ordinance. Which is interesting because in their in their treatises, uh, so William Kiffin, for instance, uh, defending what we call closed communion against John Bunyan, will use the word sacrament, and the word sacrament appears to be used into the early early eighteenth uh, uh, century. So it's it's uh, um, curious that the Baptists in the Confessions change uh, to using the word ordinance. By the 19th century, um, there is a revived anti-Roman Catholicism because of the the emergence of what we call the the Anglo-Catholic movement within the Anglican Church. And there is enormous fear about Catholicism uh, that is kind of becomes fundamental um, in Baptist circles in the 19th century. And not surprisingly, the word sacrament becomes a taboo. But in addition to that, the 19th century sees, roughly the year 1800, sees a very strong turn away from your classical Baptist understanding of what's happening at the table. The table becomes really um, a memorial. And as one wag has put it, um, 
Baptists begin to celebrate the real absence of Jesus rather than the real presence. And, um, and not surprisingly, um, for many Baptist leaders by the end of the 19th century, the table is a tacom. It gets tacked onto the end of the service maybe once a month. In some churches, once a quarter. And that kind of situation prevails into the 20th century. And the word sacrament becomes identified in the Baptist mindset with a very wrong understanding of the table. Um, again, there is a failure here to, to know our history. Uh, the word, the, the, there is no polemic against sac the word sacrament in the 17th or 18th century. Uh, there is a, uh, as I said, uh, because of the, I suspect because of the confessional documents, a growing uh, adherence to the word ordinance. Um, then the 19th century, with the revived fear of Roman Catholicism, um, there is this uh, um, anti-Catholicism, which in Baptist circles be means a disuse of the word sacrament altogether. Well, that's that's super interesting. So let's maybe we start with baptism. Um, what does it mean for baptism to be a sacrament? And what does it mean that it is a means of grace? So I think, at least me, I grew up sort of, I don't know, pan-Baptist almost, where it's just kind of like this jellyfish evangelical sort of Baptist. So means of grace, sacrament, not used with baptism whatsoever. If you told me that, I would have had no idea what you're talking about. So explain to me what that means and maybe how that might differ from a more reformed or presbyterian model so uh, not so much thinking about roman catholic here just is there a distinction between how a baptist would think about baptism as a sacrament and means of grace versus how a reformed presbyterian or anglican might yeah the terms means of grace is important here too um and there are baptists obviously for whom this is very very strange um this is just a this is the classical protestant term of to refer to uh, vehicles or things, uh, I prefer the word vehicle there, but vehicles that God uses to reinforce the Christian life in our lives, uh, to sustain us as Christians, to help us persevere, to encourage us to grow in holiness. Um, and in that case, then, means of grace encompass everything from prayer, fellowship with other believers um, preaching of the word, reading of the word, meditation on the word of God, all the way over to what we call formally the ordinances or sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, baptism uh, for us as Baptists is obviously differs from a Reformed or Presbyterian view. Uh, for the, the, the classical Reformed, uh, Dutch Reformed, for instance, or Christian Reformed um, or Anglophone Reformed view, which are paedo-Baptist. So in their context, the, the child has to reaffirm baptismal vows that were taken on the child's behalf by godparents, um, you know, when the child was baptized as an infant. For us, uh, baptism as a means of grace, first of all, it's, it's, yeah, baptism is clearly a step of obedience. So that's all, and your situation to some degree is, is, is similar to mine. I mean, when I, when I was converted, I was told I had to be baptized as a believer. And I said, why? Well, Jesus commanded it. Oh, okay. So for me, baptism then was a, simply a step of obedience. I didn't know anything more about it. Um, and I wish I had. Um, First Peter 3, baptism is a vow of commitment. 
It's a declaration of commitment to the triune God because we're baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's, it's really like a wedding commitment. And so when I'm at baptisms, when I see baptisms, I often think back to my own and, and use that visible sight of somebody being baptized as a believer to reaffirm my commitment to God. Um, it's something, I mean, Luther would say, you know, when I'm tempted by the devil, um, I, I recite to myself, um, and he would do it in Latin, uh, ego sum baptizandus, I, I am baptized, I've been baptized. Well, if Luther could do that, and he's talking about being a baby, we, how much more we, um, you know, when we're confronted with temptation, we have to remind ourselves, we have declared publicly in the presence of witnesses, in the presence of angels and devils, heaven and hell, that we belong to our Lord Jesus Christ. How then can we engage in an activity that is uh, detrimental to the kingdom, that runs in the face of all of who we are? So baptism then, um, and I suspect Baptist, Baptists very rarely think about this, but baptism is a, is a vehicle in that context for reaffirming, I am a child of the king, I'm a Christian, I belong to a different realm, this comes from the world of darkness, I cannot engage in this. If I do, I break my baptismal vows. Um, just as, you know, when you're tempted uh, to say sexual sin, um, you remember, I have made a vow before God to be loyal to my spouse. And so baptism can function in the same way as, as that. Um, and I think if we taught it that way, it, it's very, very, it's a very profound moment. When you are, you are publicly declaring that I am dead, dead to the world, alive now to Christ. I've crossed that line from um, death and darkness into light and life. And we call, I mean, the older, the illustration, uh, Spurgeon talks about it. Uh, at baptism, I crossed the Rubicon. And he's referring, of course, to the famous uh, Roman uh, ruling that the little river Rubicon in Northern Italy was the boundary between uh, the area controlled by the Roman Senate and uh, areas under the military control of various legions. And uh, Julius Caesar, uh, the famous example being Julius Caesar, where he was uh, making war on the Roman Senate, he, when he took his armies across the Rubicon, the legions across the Rubicon, he was declaring war on the Senate. If he had crossed by himself, it would have been, it would have been fine. Um, if they had all crossed, you know, individually, but once he crossed with an army, he was declaring war on the on the set. It was a it was a point of no return, and likewise, baptism is that. And so it's 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 very rich for the Christian, um, um, and uh, you know, sometimes I I've often wondered, you know, given <clears throat> given the fact we call ourselves Baptists, I mean. It's really odd that we hardly make any fuss about baptism in one sense. We, we, it, it, try to find a hymn on baptism. They did exist in the 17th, 18th centuries. Um, I mean, when, when I, the, the one church I was at for quite a number of years, uh, we would sing Fanny Crosby's Blessed Assurance when a person was baptized. We'd, we'd sing a couple of stanzas before they'd be baptized, a couple of stanzas after, which is really, I mean, it's a good hymn in some ways. But it's a second blessing hymn. It's really, it was really odd. And I, I'm thinking, as I began to think about it, I thought, 
Are there no Baptist hymns written about baptism that we could sing on this occasion? And the reality was we didn't have any in our hymnal. You know, I think when I first started thinking about baptism as a means of grace, I started to recognize when I just observed the baptisms that my own church would do. And I realized uh, it seemed like all the emphasis was, it was simply, this is your public profession of faith. And there was no mention of God's grace, his providence, and his almost promise to us as a reminder that this is a sign of his grace to to objectively yep. save us. Uh, how is it that that objectiveness of God's promise and the subjectiveness of my vow before God um, go together? So when I guess maybe this is somewhat of a practical question for pastors, how can they emphasize both of those important facets of baptism when they are administering it to new converts? Well, I think in 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 some ways, I think the the actual words that we you know, your standard Baptist uh, kind of baptismal uh, words that are uttered are, you know, upon profession of you, do you believe in our Lord Jesus Christ? And then, yes. Uh, well, upon your, your professional faith, uh, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, I was at a baptism, I was at a baptism in London, England, um, about four years ago. It was John Stott's All Souls Church. And apart from the fact that the baptism of these two, it was two young Chinese women, um, was administered by effusion rather than immersion, um, they went through the classical, um, do you believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? Um, and then, do you believe in God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? Do you renounce Satan and all his works? And there was a very clear emphasis upon grace. It was an amazing amazing i've never experienced anything like this in a baptist church it was rich um it was a rich reminder of the grace of god uh of the triune god in in our creation by the father in our redemption by the son and in the indwelling of the holy spirit and then how this is a formal renunciation of satan um i i think um one of the questions and your question prompts uh, the same my memory of the same question I began to ask, um, because I think my first way into thinking about baptism was through the Lord's table. I began to realize the Lord's table is not just simply me remembering, but God is doing something there. So I thought if God's active in, in the Lord's supper, is he active in baptism? Now that historically, uh, if, if the former, you know, what's God doing at the Lord's table brings up fears about roman catholicism the latter is even more intense especially for baptists in america and in the southern states because of cannibalism and disciples of christ i mean we may we have probably have many of us have forgotten but the cannibalite schism in the 19th century was brutal i mean it, it split tons of baptist congregations um uh, because they argued that if you don't get baptized for the forgiveness of sins by a minister who has that same conviction, uh, you're not saved. Uh, it was a very wrong view of, of, of answering the question, what is God doing in baptism? But that question, I think, needs to be asked. Um, is, is baptism simply human response? 
or is there God's grace there? And um, so I think I think very helpful maybe is I mean obviously there needs to be teaching of, of this outside of the context of baptism, of an actual physical baptism. But again, at the reminder at the, at the time of baptism, it all needs to be one or two sentences. The minister needs to say that um, uh, this act that we are about to witness is a visible um, act uh, of the grace of God that has come into this person's life. That it, this person is taking this act because they have experienced God's drawing grace and the, the Father has drawn them to Jesus. And then you could easily segue into uh, the questions about, do you believe in God the Father and so on? We were going to talk about the altar call a little bit later, but I think it fits right here because that, as we're talking through this, I have a question about what role maybe revivalism has in in the emphasis on it being the the, the person that's being baptized. All of the emphasis is on them uh, rather than on what God is doing. And so like the tradition that I grew up in, um, and I'm, I'm even ashamed to say it, but I mean, so I was baptized twice. Uh, I was baptized as, as a nine-year-old. Um, you know, I profess faith. And then, you know, I went off to camp when I was 15 and, you know, decided that I didn't really mean it the first time. Like now it seemed real and I was baptized again. And I know a lot of people have that grew up in the same kind of context have similar stories. And I, I wonder if if the the revivalist uh, tradition is is part of the reason that things like that play out, because we put so much of the emphasis on the the emotional human reaction rather than the um, the once for all, you know, commitment from God, from, from God to us and then our allegiance to him in baptism. Do you think it has something to do with the influence of revivalism? Yeah, I think revivalism has been an enormous uh, influence in this regard in reshaping the way we think about the ordinances or the sacraments. Um, in fact, I think uh, for many of our Baptist churches, particularly in the southern United States, um, the altar call has become an ordinance. Um, so, I mean, some of our <clears throat> graduates from Southern have sometimes have had problems in SBC churches when they'll be asked the question, do you, what do you think about the altar call? Do you practice the altar call? And if they, if they begin to hesitate or even begin to try to explain their thinking about the altar call, well, that's the end of the interview. I mean, the, the church doesn't want them because this is this, the altar call becomes, I, I mean, I've, I've been through that. I mean, I, I, that was the world I was converted in where we had an altar call pretty well every week and uh, the altar call becomes this kind of emotional high point at where at which the believer responds to the believer and the unbeliever respond to the preaching of the gospel but the altar call in that sense then has usurped the place of of baptism and the table the table is the place where we recommit our lives to christ um and the the place where i declare i'm a christian is not the altar call. The place where I declare publicly I'm a Christian is in believer's baptism. Um, now, I've gone through, probably like both of you, I've gone through different thinking, you know, over the years about the altar call. I mean, my initial experience, because I didn't know any better, was, yeah, this is part of the, you know, worship service. And then as I be entered into reformed thinking, I began to do a kind of a complete, uh, you know, uh, 180 degree turn on the whole experience. Uh, read books like uh, Errol Hulse um, on this and others. 
and um, <clears throat> basically denounced the whole thing. Um, in more recent years, um, I've come to see that it, it could be, it can be used, um, I think, uh, judiciously. I think there may be an occasion. The idea of having it every week is, I think, deeply problematic. Um, but I think it can be used judiciously. Um, as long as one recognizes that this really is, I mean, I, I, you'd be hard put to find biblical justification for this as an actual formal aspect of worship. And the danger is, I think it has usurped the place of both our ordinances. And the reason why Baptists have not, despite our name, we've not been big on baptism in one sense, uh, at least properly, and we definitely have not been big on the Lord's Supper, is because we've got this other thing called the altar call, which has taken its place. So I want to go back to baptism one more time specifically. Uh, I think what it's in Westminster that it talks about baptism as a sign and seal. Is that required for us to think of baptism as a sacrament? Do you have to think of it as a sign and seal? And if you do, is that incompatible with the credo Baptist or Baptistic sort of doctrine of baptism? Yes. Um, I mean, baptism is a sign to, to, to the believer of what God has done in his or her life. Of course, we're understanding it very different from the Westminster, which is paedo-baptist. Um, is, it, is it the seal? Well, the, again, I, I, there I've got problems because the seal, the seal is the spirit. I mean, the New Testament, the, the, the words, the sealing language of the New Testament, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 4, 30, uh, 2 Corinthians, the sealing language is reserved for the spirit. And uh, it is interesting to me that the Westminster and the, the, the um, Second London do not have a separate article on the spirit. And, um, uh, the, you know, one has to think through, uh, you know, the pneumatology of the, the Westminster. What's the pneumatology of the Second London Confession? Um, there were those in the ranks of those who signed the Second London Confession who uh, believed in a, after baptism, I think you hear Benjamin Keach, after baptism, they believed in the laying on of hands for the sealing of the spirit. Um, but in traditional, there is a large section of traditional reform thought that would, and I, it'd be interesting to know how they, how this, they, they uh, kind of yoke this together with baptism as a seal, uh, that would see the spirit of the seal. So that language in some respects is problematic in my mind to talk about baptism as the seal of the of, of of conversion and the seal of God. The Spirit is the seal of God. I mean, in the New Testament, um, it's I think it's quite evident that one can be one can be unbaptized formally as we know it and be sealed by the Spirit, be, be a Christian. I mean, the thief on the cross is the example. Um, and then if you go through the if you go through the book of Acts. The critical thing in the book of Acts for conversion is the spirit, the indwelling of the spirit. Um, baptism is not always there, but the, the spirit is the critical thing. Now, in the biblical, I think if you look at the larger context of the New Testament, there are three constituent elements of conversion. There is the response of the believer. There is baptism, believer's baptism, and the seal is the spirit. The spirit, the presence of the spirit. Um, and obviously the most critical thing there is the spirit. 
Um, without him, we can't respond. Without him, baptism is, is a hollow and empty. And um, some of the early Christian writers preserve this. By the time you get to the fourth century, the, the, these four things, these three things are being split apart. And the person who really critically splits them apart is Augustine, um, who is such a great figure in so many ways for us. But he basically does uh, split them apart. Um, and in his argument, robust, well, strong argument for uh, infant baptism. Um, he splits apart with the early church because obviously the, the, the infant baptism, the, <clears throat> the, 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 the person being baptized, the infant being baptized can't make, a, can't make any sort of statement. That then has to be made later. And uh, when that happens later, then that is confirmation that the spirit has indeed indwelt that person. So Augustine splits them apart. And in some ways, we as Baptists, we inherit that splitting apart. Maybe we could we could transition now to uh, to the Lord's Supper and what how the supper itself functions as a sacrament. And I was hoping maybe as part of your answer, um, you could talk a little bit about Ann Dutton. You have a section um, on her in your book, and she seems to have one of the more uh, I don't know the best way to put it, robust or thick uh, understandings of what's actually happening in the supper uh, out of the Baptist tradition. Yeah, so the Lord's Supper, the other ordinance, <clears throat> I think is, <clears throat> excuse me, vital for um, vital for Christian growth. I think one of the big, and again, some of this relates, you know, as I began to write the book, I we were in the middle of a major lockdown here where I live in Canada. And um, so I hadn't had the Lord's table for maybe a year. And... Um, I began to realize how vital that is to, to my Christian life. Um, the table is a place where I recommit myself to the gospel, to Christ, to the gospel, to the kingdom. Uh, the table is a place where I hear again that all of my sins, known and unknown, are, are being forgiven. Uh, the table is a place where I'm a recipient again of just that grace of forgiveness. The table is a place where I um, uh, anticipate um, the eschatological um, marriage supper of the Lamb. The table is a place where I recommit myself to my brothers and sisters. It's a communal event. Uh, the whole the whole idea, you know, hey, a bunch of us are off having a camping trip and we can have the Lord's Supper. Well, no, you can't. <laughs> you know, uh, it, the, 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 the Lord's table is a, is a church event. It's an, it's, a, it's an event of the church. The gathered church. Um, Anne Dutton, I think, in the 18th century, born in 1692, she dies in 1765. She, she has a remarkable uh, understanding about the table, and she has a, a treatise that she wrote in the 1740s in response to um, a woman whom she doesn't name. She simply describes her as my dear madam uh, in an introductory letter. Um, uh, she basically goes to 1 Corinthians 10, where the Apostle Paul is discussing uh, eating the, the, the viability of eating meat that is being sacrificed to idols. And um, he's dealing with the, the two really groups. One group are, are fearful that if, a, if meat has been sacrificed to an idol, it's been somehow infected and therefore will pollute you spiritually. And they won't eat it. Um, and then the other group who believe that 
who are so emboldened because idols, as Paul says, are nothing. They're creation of men's imaginations and technology. They're so emboldened, they can actually go into temples where there is pagan worship going on and, and animal sacrifice and be with their friends there. And uh, Paul responds to the former, um, you know, you, you shouldn't be afraid. Idols don't exist. So if you have to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, and he's thinking here of what we call restaurants. Most restaurants were situated lo uh, in locale next to, to pagan temples, and the meat that they used was meat that had been sacrificed in the temple. So he's basically saying, don't, don't worry about that. Or if you go to, if you go to a pagan's home and uh, they, they, they utter some sort of prayer to some to, to deity, um, you can eat that meat. But on the other hand, you should not go. That doesn't mean because you're free in Christ uh, uh, and you recognize that these things are these idols are not do not exist. That doesn't mean what, that you can go to a pagan worship service where these animals are being sacrificed and think that that is spiritually neutral. It is not because you are this, the gods you may be being addressed, like you know uh, Jupiter or or uh, Zeus or Hermes or whatever. Um, those gods don't exist, but there are spiritual powers there. And the pagan worship is a nexus of, of demonic power. So what Paul does at the end of 1 Corinthians 10, as he's arguing against the participation in pagan, pagan worship, he gives two examples to illustrate that when you engage in worship, uh, there, is, uh, there is a spiritual presence. First of all, he goes to the Old Testament. And he talks about the Old Testament priests who, when they uh, ate the meat that they had sacrificed in the temple, they were having fellowship with God. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 18 and 19, that the same is happening in the Lord's table. Now, if Paul did not think that the table was a place of fellowship with Christ, his whole argument falls to the ground. His argument is not defending um, fellowship the table is a place of fellowship with Christ. His argument is basically showing that when you go into a pagan worship context, which today, you know, Buddhist, Confucian, Muslim, you are sitting down with demons. That's his argument. And it is really strong. The, old, the, the scriptures are not hesitant to describe uh, false religions as demonically inspired at some level. And, um, and then he uses as an example what we do at the table. So the table then is a, is a place of fellowship. Um, and such fellowship obviously is going to be as rich as fellowship with God in the word, fellowship with God through his, with his people, uh, fellowship with God in prayer. Good. So the last question I want to ask you is related to chapter three of your book on the right way of worship. I can't remember if you say it exactly like this, but I think uh, part of the argument is open membership and open communion undermine the insights of Baptist ecclesiology and their sacramental church experience. Can you explain why you think that's the case? Yeah. And obviously I, I, I was baptized in a what we would describe today as an open, open community and closed membership context, which is your pretty standard Baptist viewpoint. Uh, nobody really, I don't know if anybody held that viewpoint before Spurgeon. Spurgeon pioneered that view. Um, 
Um, there may have been one or two Baptist figures, but before, before that, there were really two positions. One is you were either committed to, if you were committed to open communion, that is anybody who was a professing believer could partake of the table in a Baptist church on a regular basis. Um, you were also committed to open membership. That is, you did not have to be baptized as a believer to be a member. The classic example here is John Bunyan. But other, there are other examples. Um, Henry Jesse in the 17th century. John Ryland Jr., who is a very close friend of William Carey. He was open communion, open, open membership. Um, the opposite position then was, and again, the part, of the part of the problem, I think, for communication of this view to the modern audience is the word open and closed. If we could come up with better words, because as soon as I hear the word closed, immediately there are negative associations. I don't want to be a closed person. You know, I'm open, <laughs> you know, but um, the opposite view is technically known as closed community and closed membership. That is, you have to be baptized as a believer to be a member of a local Baptist church. And only those members who are being so baptized are entitled to regularly participate in the Lord's table. Um, if and I again, I, I the, there were a number of Baptists in the 18th century, people like Benjamin Bedham, who didn't have a problem with, let's say, a, uh, an Apato Baptist turns up at your church on a given Sunday where you're celebrating the table and they partake of the table. That's not the major concern of this argument. The major concern of this argument is the oodles of people. In the Baptist context, in the again, it's a bit, it's very different from our world today in some respects. In your typical English, particular Baptist context in the 18th century, usually your membership list was vastly smaller than the number of people who would attend for worship on a Sunday, which is the exact opposite today in a lot of Southern Baptist churches. So you might have a like Andrew Fuller had about a thousand people who regularly heard him preach every week. But there were only 180 to 200 members. Because taking the step of baptism was so, it was always done publicly in the open air, in a lake, in a river, uh, partly because of technology. It was just too difficult to have running water into churches and so on. Um, but in small communities, that was very difficult for people to do because that immediately identified you with this community and Baptists were looked down upon. They were marginalized. They were socially inferior, uh, illegally inferior, as uh, and we, we can't go into detail of that because of time. Um, and so the concern of these Baptists was if a person is regularly coming, this is their church, that they're week in, week out, but they've not been baptized as believers. That's a violation of biblical polity. Uh, the, 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 the polity is we get baptized as believers, and that's the doorway into the church. And the Lord's Supper is, is an ordinance that comes after baptism. Uh, to argue that um, you, I can participate in the Lord's table, and it doesn't matter what, whether I've been properly baptized or not, is really to, to demean that first ordinance, which is the, the public declaration that I've died and I've been, been raised with Christ. And um, in my own experience, many years ago um, in the 1990s, when I was teaching at um, a school that I still do some teaching at, Heritage Theological Seminary, and I'm actually, you know, on the core faculty 
uh, doing uh, church history there. Um, some of the students came and said, we, we'd love to do the Lord's Supper in chapel. And um, they asked the faculty if they could do this. And I was given the responsibility to make a report within a week or two. And I thought, this isn't easy. Of course I can. No big deal. It took me a year to come back with a report. And the answer was no. I, I, I God in that year changed my whole mind. I, I began to investigate, you know, how have Baptists thought about the relationship of the, of, of the, of the, of the Lord's table to the church? Uh, what is, you know, how is the, the, the baptism, a local church ordinance, et cetera, et cetera. I thought, you know, part of my argument was we would no more be baptizing people in that, in, you know, Bible college. Then we, if, if we won't do that, then why should we do the Lord's Supper? And uh, so that was the beginning of, and then I, you know, from there I read William Kiffin's defense uh, quite extensively on uh, the relationship between the ordinances and his argument for uh, a closed communion position. And so that's really what I, I present in that chapter. I just, I just wanted to say before we, before we closed up uh, how much I enjoyed the book and for those Thank listening, you. Um, you know, the six theses at the end are definitely a good word to, to Baptist. Uh, it's a very short section, but I thought that was uh, to the point and some things that we probably need to hear and, and probably think a lot about uh, in our Baptist churches today. So thank you for that. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for this time. It's great. Yeah, no problem. Always- this is, this has been awesome. Dr. Haken, you're the man. We appreciate all that you do, um, all the effort and, uh, and the, I don't know how late you're up every night working on these things, but I mean, it really does bless uh, all of us. So we're so thankful for the work that you've done to really, um, I don't know. I I don't know if you're you're not single-handedly the reason for all of this, but I feel like there's really been a Baptist history revival over the last, I don't know, uh, period of time, like recent period of time. And I think a lot of people attribute you as a key reason for that. So thank you for uh, the work that you do, you uh, are really making an impact, I think, long-term for Baptist studies and just the own vitality and life of the church overall. So thank you uh, for doing this. And thank for you. everybody's listening, I, I mean, if you haven't read Dr. Haken's stuff, go read it. It's it's going to worth your time. It's the right balance of uh, academic plus the pastoral sensitivities and heart. Uh, I think you can't find any value better than Dr. Haken. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.